this year. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to Goldsmiths and the Political Economy Research Centre. For those of you who are uh, visiting us today, my name is Will Davis, and I'm the director of the Political Economy Research Centre. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined today by uh, Quinn Slobodian. Uh, Quinn is currently a uh, what are you, a visiting associate professor. At, no, you're, you're about to move to uh, Boston University, but not yeah. for till next year. Yeah. Um, he is um, uh, currently at Wellesley College. Many of you will know um, him via his, uh, one of his previous books, Globalists, uh, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. But he's also edited some really fascinating collections with Dieter Plevy and Philip Murawski, uh, Market Civilizations, Neoliberals East and South, and The Nine Lives of Neoliberalism. Um, he's with us today uh, to discuss his new book, uh, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and the Dream of a World Without Democracy, which is a really uh, superb analysis of particular libertarian uh, visions of uh, uh, ways to insulate markets from democratic interference. It's um, got some fantastic uh, uh, stories, case studies, uh, historical details regarding particular libertarian gurus, particular uh, uh, examples of uh, city-states, uh, economic zones, places like Canary Wharf, Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong, Honduras. Um, so it covers uh, a, a wide variety of historical, geographical, and intellectual material um, in a way that I think really uh, knits together some of these threads regarding the ideology of uh, uh, spaces of what might be called market exception. Um, we are going to, uh, the way things are going to work today is that uh, I'm going to have a conversation with Quinn about the book for, well, we didn't really agree with this actually, but let's say about sort of half an hour, 40 minutes, something like that, try and talk about some of the elements of the book. I have actually read the book and I actually have a review of the book coming out in The Guardian at some point. So uh, without wanting to spoil what my uh, take on the book might be uh, in that piece. Um, but uh, we're going to have a, a discussion about, uh, about the book um, for, as I say, 30, 40 minutes or something. Um, and then uh, we can open things up to uh, questions, to discussion. Um, the book, I'm told, will be on sale via the word bookshop. I think they're going to turn up uh, sometime after 2 o'clock, and I believe there is a discount uh, on the cover price of the book. And Quinn has even generously said that he will be available to sign copies if anybody would like that to happen. Uh, and then we'll try and wrap things up uh, before around about 2.30 or so, just depending on exactly uh, how, uh, how things progress from there. So um, thanks very much for joining us, Quinn. It's a real uh, pleasure to have you back at Goldsmiths uh, this afternoon. Um, I was just wondering, many of us uh, will uh, be aware of your, um, your work on... Uh, the history of neoliberal um, uh, intellectuals, in particular the work in Globalists, which for those of you who don't know Globalists, it's a, a long history dating right back to World War I of how um, neoliberal intellectuals, a particular group that Quinn describes as the Geneva School of ordo liberals and um, uh, other neoliberal economists, uh, how they imagined and tried to design uh, the legal architecture for the global economy that might lift markets uh, above the level of the nation state and allow price mechanisms to become fully sort of insulated from national democratic interference by pushing them into spaces that are at a transnational or even global scale. Uh, I believe that book came out in 2018, so this is now uh, five years later. Could you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this particular uh, book, which is obviously operating uh, at a different type of uh, geographic and historical uh, uh, analysis, uh, but perhaps also some of the kind of connections that, 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 that might link these books together, or how you move sure. from globalists to crack up capitalism? 
Yeah, yeah, thanks. And thanks everybody for coming. Um, I really like Goldsmith and it's nice to be here again. So the Globalist book was a funny one because I wrote it mostly before 2016 and then it came out after 2016. So what I was talking about is kind of just like the status quo, like everybody believes in globalization, like everyone's pushing for larger and larger trade treaty organizations. Suddenly after 2016 was just like not true at all anymore. So what hadn't been really written as like retrospective history suddenly became this snapshot of a kind of just lost moment. And one of the ways that the book goes is that it begins with the small place of Austria trying to sort of reinsert itself into a world that has moved from a world of empires to a world of nations. And by the end of the narrative, we're in the 1970s and, and it basically ends in Hong Kong. So it ends in 1978 at ML and Society meeting in Hong Kong where Milton Friedman is sort of like, well, we've been so focused on these global level solutions, built, rebuilding kind of supranational organizations, international investment law, something, something like the United Nations, but for the world economy. But what if we flipped the scale and instead of focusing on the largest possible scale, the kind of planetary global scale, what if we focused on sort of designing smaller places that could sort of operate in the seams or in the sort of the borders of various legal uh, and regulatory uh, regimes. And, you know, he sort of starts to wonder what might the kind of perfect small-scale shell for capitalism look like. And sitting in, in, um, in Hong Kong, he says, things seem to be going really well here. You know, they've, went, they've gone from nearly nothing to being a sort of uh, a manufacturing hub. They're beginning to be a kind of offshore hub, a kind of a center for regional finance and investment. And what are the ingredients of such a place? And you know, it occurs to him that the fact that there is no one person, one vote democracy is actually uh, very helpful. There's no kind of in special interest blocks, no problems of organized labor, no sort of uh, hangovers of expectations or privileges from sort of uh, castes of people. Instead, there is a colonial administration and then a fairly liquid labor force that you know is willing to take a job from one day to the next, entrepreneurs who are willing to open a factory from one day to the next. And this to him looked like a kind of scale model of how one could you know, operate nimbly and effectively in a time of ever increasing global competition. So the, this book then sort of begins where the last one left off. You have Milton Friedman once again kind of standing in Hong Kong and in this case presenting the city for the free to choose program that he showed to great success on PBS in the United States. And the, the examples that follow from there are sort of varieties of this sort of capitalist miniaturism in an era of you know increased financialization, ever longer and more complex supply chains. And the experiments sort of get more and more eccentric as I follow them. Um, one of the things that, that I did in Globalist that I would say I do again is sort of use a kind of two-track methodology where on the one hand I'm giving a broad overview of changes from decade to decade and then I'm also following fairly small biographical stories and reconstructing their ideas and their writings. So sort of using the small to give a perspective on the large without hopefully implying that these small groups of people are sort of 
the puppet masters behind macro change because that's not the implication. I try to use individual biographies as kind of spy holes into transformations from one decade to the next. And I mean, I think it's worth saying if you want to talk about the genesis of the book, you mentioned a series of books that I've done in the meantime that are have the word neoliberalism in the title somewhere. And part of the way that this book turned out, I think, was a kind of a fatigue with the way that that field of neoliberalism studies had developed uh, in the sense that you were almost always following a similar kind of story in which a small group of intellectuals somehow give a set of ideas to powerful politicians who then carry them out either nationally or internationally with that group of politicians often or the group of thinkers pretty narrowly defined, usually Friedman, usually Hayek, sometimes more recently James Buchanan. So part of what I wanted to do with this book was just to be like, I want to write about completely different people. Mm. And I also want to get away from the, the, to me, repetitive and boring thing of neoliberals don't believe in states, they just believe in markets. And then you say, aha, but no, they do in fact believe in states. This is how they see the state operating to encase and, and protect markets. I wanted to find the people that were like, the, the hardcore libertarian anarcho-capitalists were like, no, we actually want to do away with states. Mm. <laughs> if you think we want to get rid of states, you're right. Yeah. And how do we want to do that? Well, here's our, here's, our, here's our blueprint. So part of it was my attempt to just kind of shake up the, I think, predictable nature of um, the marketization story, focus on different sites, not do as much as possible the kind of greatest hits, even though there is a certain amount of Thatcher in this book, it must be said. <laughs> so the, um, what neither, neither of us has mentioned yet is that one of the kind of central concepts in the book is one of the central kind of empirical historical objects of the book is the idea of the economic zone, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, you mentioned Hong Kong, which is uh, uh, the sort of pivotal and perhaps uh, almost kind of originary um, case of an economic zone, although whether or not it would have been called that is, a, is, is another question. But uh, could you just, I guess, for the benefit of the audience, because I think this is kind of really kind of what this book is most substantially concerned with. Yeah. Could you tell us what is an economic zone, both in the way that concept is used by people who talk about zones, as, as mm -hmm. like Rishi Sunak has recently been describing Northern Ireland now as one of the world's yeah. best economic zones, right. uh, but also uh, perhaps in the, in, in the way that you're using the term to, to, to explore things that have some of the properties of an economic zone, even if they don't get mm -hmm. called an economic zone? Yeah, so that's also another part of the kind of subtext for mm. why I took that approach in this book is kind of a dissatisfaction with the framing in both academic and popular discussions in which it seemed like there were mostly kind of two scales that were operative, right? There was either the global scale or there was the national scale. Something beeping. Oh, oh maybe it's just the chair. Um, so, you know, since 2016, it was like, we used to have this global era and now we've returned to the national era. And then other people say, no, we're still defending the global against the national. It seemed to me that just as a matter of empirical fact, a lot of cap capitalism operates you know, through, through subnational spaces and subnational territories as geographers and sociologists and anthropologists have reminded us for years and years. So part of what I was doing, I think, was just saying like, look, people like Iwa Ong, Keller Easterling, these people have been banging on about zones for like decades now. 
And wouldn't it be helpful for us if we could sort of add that to our conversation, the realization that there are not just two scales in the world, uh, either global or national, but that exceptional economic spaces that have their own kind of bespoke set of legal regulations are actually the things that usually draw in mobile investor capital, the places where money goes to hide, they're the places that are the command and control centers for financialized world. So, so the zone, um, as studied by many other academics, is one of the things that I make kind of the protagonist in the book. And depending on which academic you choose, there's a different origin story for what we mean when we say a zone. Imperial historians are interested in things like the treaty ports or the concessions at the coast of China in the second half of the 19th century or the extraterritorial, extraterritorial spaces in the Ottoman Empire, for example. The, the legal landscape of the 19th century was, as the historian Lauren Benton puts it, lumpy, right? It wasn't a smooth kind of legal landscape. There were different benefits, forms of, um, forms of legal exemption and exception that you got for being in one territory rather than the other, one small patch of land rather than the other. So some people, I think, usefully say that, Vanessa Ogle, for example, would say that what develops after the 1970s with the proliferation of these subnational zones is a sort of a replication of the heterogeneous legal pluralism of the age of empire before it, going back to the enclave economies in the Indian Ocean of the Portuguese and the Dutch and so on. Other people would have a shorter genealogy. So the export processing zone is rolled out in Puerto Rico and Taiwan in the 1950s and 60s as a way of saying you may not you know trust the kind of certainty or the rule of law in the entire island of Puerto Rico but what if we said we could guarantee certain you know return on investment in one small place and we also said that the, pol the politicians wouldn't be able, able to intervene and the unions wouldn't be able to go beyond these gates would that make let's say the manufacture of textiles or toys or whatever more interesting to you and in places like Taiwan and the Philippines and um, Puerto Rico, this became a way, it became in a way sort of like the, the primary form of drawing in investment capital and, and to this day kind of in the world of development policy sort of like the first go-to for how to develop a country is to create a small zone and allow and allow for um, greater expectations from someone who might otherwise not be attracted to this or that country. So the EPZ is that version of the zone. The special economic zone is the most numerically, you know, uh, the most numerous and the most successful version of this. And that was the the sort of replication in a way of Hong Kong that was brought to the southern Chinese mainland beginning in the late 1970s, the Shenzhen is the most famous place where in quite a literal emulation of Hong Kong, the story was, okay, we'll draw this line on the map and within this line, you can re-commodify labor, you can re-commodify land, you can have foreign owned property, you can allow in foreign investment from Japan and Hong Kong in ways that you can't elsewhere. And as, as historians and, and sinologists have documented in great detail, this kind of zonification of the Chinese mainland is really what 
ends up being the kind of engine of what we think of now as the liberalization and eventually the extraordinary economic success of China. In other words, it wasn't a kind of a, pro a process sort of conducted centrally from Beijing, you know, with kind of plans projecting quotas outward, but it was through these sort of local liberations of, um, of private initiative, often quite ungoverned or with little oversight, that allowed for a kind of piecemeal honeycomb of kind of jurisdictional proliferation that eventually, if you look at the sort of zones of exception in, in the PRC now, it covers a good chunk of the country. So I think the export processing, the special economic zone, and then arguably the, um, the, the tax haven based in some, in some ways upon this original case here in London of the city of London is one that, that historians have also written and journalists written quite a bit about as a kind of subnational jurisdiction that can trace its roots back, of course, to the Middle Ages. But so, I mean, there's, I mean, this is, gets us to the kind of paradox of libertarianism as well, because so part of the appeal of these zones, uh, certainly to those on the neoliberal right, such mm -hmm. as Milton Friedman, is that they are um, enclaves from the state in some sense. But mm -hmm. then one of the other dimensions of it, and this is, I guess, the paradox of libertarianism, is that uh, they also often have some fairly authoritarian qualities that you haven't really mentioned yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, political liberties are suspended in, in, in many cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, Canary Wharf here in London is a great example of that, right? You can't, don't have the usual right to protest and gather mm -hmm. in Canary Wharf as you do in other parts of the, the city. But yeah, I mean, this, it's, it's, it's interesting looking at the kind of the boosters of the zone because they're, they even disagree between themselves. So you have, on the one hand, like the sort of the libertarians that say the special economic zone is like an instrument of liberation from the state. In authoritarian governments, you can create areas where some form of economic freedom anyway will reign. But then even within the libertarian community, there's people that are like, hold on here, let's look at this uh, from a slight remove, you see that actually these are tools of the state, and in fact, the people who have used zoning most effectively are precisely authoritarian, undemocratic forms of capitalism, like the PRC, like the Gulf states. Like now, a great fan of this approach is now Saudi Arabia, doing things like NEOM, which people have probably heard of, which is on the face of it supposed to introduce a new space for forms of civil freedom that would be um, unavailable to residents of Saudi Arabia outside of it, but it's very hard to see it as something other than just a tool of an authoritarian state used from outside. Um, as far as the practice of the libertarians themselves, sort of like what happens when they get what they want, the, one of the chapters in the book is about gated communities, which had a sort of a, a, a very steep uh, exponential rise in the United States in the 1980s and 1990s. In fact, you know, some people, I'm just old enough to kind of remember when the idea of the gated community was sort of like this dystopian idea. This is where we're headed. We're all going to be living in gated communities. I feel like it was like really like a 90s idea of where we were all headed. Um, the libertarians I write about in the book, I find found interesting to revisit this moment through because they love this, right? They were like, this is so wonderful. We have these possibilities for experiments in private ordering where a relationship between co-inhabitants and neighborhoods is not mediated through, let's say, a local government or sets of laws that might pertain nationally, but through 
literally like clauses A through Z on the contract that you sign when you join. And in every case, how much power you have in that gated community is indexed onto how big your property is, how many um, lots you might happen to own. So they saw these as like wonderful examples of private government in miniature, which again, as is well known with gated communities, tended to have actually more regulation and fewer freedoms for personal expression than you know, average neighborhoods or outside mm. the city, right? I mean, the, the, the constraints on things like what kind of blinds you could have and what you could do with your front yard and how heavy your dog could be and whether your lover could be under age 40 or not. I mean, these are literally the sort of the cases that get litigated through these contracts. Yeah, although, I mean, I think as you, you pick up at one point the, the, the Hirschman distinction between exit and voice because they would say that the difference between a nation state and one of these kinds of gated zones is that mm -hmm. In the case of these gated zones, if you don't like it, you move somewhere else, which is sort of a bit like a kind of, it's almost like a sort of GB News kind of talking point, which is like, you don't like it, you can go, you can sort of, mm -hmm. you know, you can leave kind of thing. It's a sort mm -hmm. of a, um, a, a sort of classic motif on the right, but in this case, a kind of marketized one where effectively your, your, your dwelling, your, your space mm -hmm. of citizenship is a bit like uh, a company that you choose to have sort of contracted mm -hmm. with and, and therefore can, can well, kind of shift well, elsewhere. In I have to say that that is actually one of the things that drew me to this cast of characters mm. too, is that I think that the, you know, George Monbiot, bless his heart, but like the idea that like neoliberalism has taken over the world, like this sort of, this grand idea that there's just like one model of political economy that has become universalized mm. is often, I think, the, the, the way that kind of leftist academic arguments tend to go. And you know, there's ways in which that's true, but it's actually not true that all neoliberal intellectuals want that. Mm. <laughs> and the interesting thing about these proper libertarians is they're like big decentralizers, yeah. right? And so the idea of if you don't like it, then you can move, right? This idea of you know what Buchanan call, or would call competitive federalism would indeed suggest that there would be like a menu of different kinds of communities, mm. and it's with like a sort of palette of well, what. You know, what's your level of comfort with collective decision making and so on? And in that sense, in their normative world, you don't actually have one model governing everything. You have a kind of diversity and heterogeneity of models within which some kind of self sorting can take place. And actually, you know, as a as a kind of vision of the future, you know, that's, I think, in a way, not the worst one, mm. the idea that there might be a kind of um, um, a, a diversity of smaller scale uh, life choices contained within kind of territories. Yeah. And, and the, again, also the charm of these folks is they're often quite frank about the potentially authoritarian outcomes of the, of the worlds that they're imagining. So David Friedman, underrated son of Milton Friedman, underrated because he's just, a, he's like a nut. He's a crazy guy. Like, he, he helped to start the Society of Creative Anachronism in the United States, which if you know what that is, is also known as LARPing, quite literally um, dressing as of someone from the Middle Ages and, and living life for two weeks a year as if you were in the year 1150, whatever. He's been playing a Berber Muslim poet uh, cons consistently since the 1970s when he started one of the biggest LARPing con con conventions in the United States. You can watch him reading poetry in Arabic um, on YouTube. It's only with if his right like hand, to, I learned. Yes, he only with his right hand. Um, 
when he's in character. And he introduced this idea at the, at the LARPing gatherings about what he called the enchanted ground, which meant that this was an area where once you enter, no references to the modern world allowed, absolutely no modern technologies. And if you break that law, like you're expelled from the enchanted ground. And it's, you know, it's quite literally LARPing, which is often used, at least in my sort of circles, as a kind of a pejorative. Well, that's kind of like you're just LARPing communism or you're like LARPing Red Army faction or whatever, right? But I like his idea, which is like, what is the difference between LARPing and politics, right? I mean, in a way, what these anarcho-capitalists are saying is like, you know, you, they are prefigurative communities in a way that you can set up and they are on the lookout for sites where one can do this sort of prefigurative political practice. Um, in that sense, they are kind of, I think, you know, inheriting some of the, the uh, practices of the 1960s and 70s um, in ways that are quite different from, I think, just, you know, seizing the reins of power and like rolling out like a balanced budget amendment or whatever we think neoliberals are usually up to. I mean, this, this kind of points towards one of the features of the book, which is that there are these examples of economic zones that economic geographers have, have studied, um, you know, the sort of people in the, in the kind of Lefebvre tradition of being quite interested in these kind of sub-national kind of spaces and so on. Uh, and that, I guess, you know, in terms of your history that you've told, you see Hong Kong is this kind of key moment which develops this, you know, demonstrates the potential of these kinds of zones. It, to both the communist and the capitalist world, which is one of the really interesting aspects of that. But then, and I, and I was wondering if you could sort of try and comment a bit about the sort of, the, the sort of chronology of this, because there seems to be a kind of lag before maybe the 90s or the 2000s, where you get then the arrival of these sort of, I guess the libertarians, because I mean, the people who set up Canary Wharf, for instance, which is an economic zone in, in, mm -hmm. of a sort, they weren't libertarians. I mean, they weren't mm -hmm. sort of like no. fueled by some kind of crazy vision of a sort of, you know, creating a, a sort of, a society based around the model of a corporation or or, or, a, or a monarch or whatever these kind of other something mm -hmm. strange. Mm -hmm. So 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 the sort of the gurus and the wacky ideologue ideologues sort of turn up kind of in your story maybe sort of twenty or thirty years after the kind of moment of this sort of beginning mm -hmm. of the fracturing of state space. Does that I don't know maybe that's not quite accurate, but there is yeah. a difference between these the zones which are the sort of you know the, these these genuine. Uh, transformations in the geography of capitalism and of communism mm -hmm. and then these sort of utopian science fiction mm -hmm. fantasies and then someone like Peter Thiel kind of appears in the book as almost like having a, a, a foot in both camps I mean he's kind of a, a sort of crazy libertarian sci-fi fantasist but he's also mm -hmm. actually transforming the nature of, 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 of large-scale investment in certain mm -hmm. ways. Yeah I mean I think that probably might be a bit of just the consequence of the cases I selected right, okay. right? I mean I think the, the Canary Wharf example, it's, you know, I'm not the first person to write about this kind of a staple of um, urban history textbooks, um, the, one of which, Cities of Tomorrow, which I teach in my urban history class, is written by Peter Hall. Right. Peter Hall, who famously, as an anarchist geographer, is the one who proposed the idea of creating little Hong Kongs in Glasgow and Liverpool and London by ring-fencing his space and freeing them of all regulations, by which he meant these spaces would be outside of the European community. The people who lived there would not have citizenship whatsoever. And so Jeffrey Howe took an extremely watered-down version of that, which then got further watered down through Michael Heseltine and became eventually a sort of industrial policy in a way, in the sense that developers were just being given big state subsidies and the city was 
that London was building, um, you know, the city airport and kind of building infrastructure to encourage development. So it became much more anodyne than, than some of the visions of it were. But someone like um, Raymond Crave is an anarchist historian who uh, has recently, recently written about, say, a lot of the things that fall between that moment of the 70s and the early 2000s. A lot of things happening in the Caribbean with attempts at creating small micro-nations. So the, those things were going on. I think that the, the thing I would say about my own intervention as a historian is that part of what I was doing with this book was, was trying to say we should have different and sometimes better histories of the world since the end of the Cold War. That I think when we all reacted with such shock in 2016 because everything had been so global since the Cold War ended, it's just like amnesia, short-term amnesia, because if you even just look at those same think pieces from the Atlantic or whatever in the early 1990s, it wasn't all just saying like, we're entering sort of kumbaya, coca-colonization of the globe at all, right? I mean, there was lots of talk about the fracturing of legacy polities like Canada, you know, the Quebec secession, the beginnings of Scottish devolution, the Catalan secession, the Flemish and Walloon um, conflicts. Somalia becoming a stateless uh, nation for a decade, the sort of Robert Kaplan stuff about transnational networks of drug cartels and mafioso and so on acting as kind of new actors undermining states. And all, again, all stuff that geographers and anthropologists were writing about throughout as well, right? The idea of like a neo-medievalist fragmentation of territory was, that was 90s talk too, right? So the idea that we'd only been thinking about seamless integration the whole time, just seems to me like in need of some mm. immediate revision. So part of what the, the goal there was just to say like, let's not forget all of the correct insights we'd had about alternative forms of sovereignty in the 90s. And then in the early 2000s, why I think I come into Silicon Valley so hard is that only in writing the book did I think I re realize how much the invasion of, of Iraq and Afghanistan sort of intersected and in fact kind of gave energy to a kind of fascination with tech solutionism that I think you don't get actually. The idea of seasteading and kind of charter cities unless you have the Iraq war because oh. it, it was that kind of shattering of like the basic decorum of like Westphalian sovereignty that I think led to this in a way, a fluorescence of excitement, like, ooh, if we can do that, mm. what else can we do? Like, are we just in the project of just making new nations now? And so a lot of the times the co comparison of, say, Dubai, Dubai's success in the early 2000s is like, look at this interesting bespoke boutique nation, like, so different from the one just around the corner that the Americans can't seem to put back together again. And then meanwhile, Paul Romer, in, in, in Silicon Valley in, in San Francisco in 2009 saying, the way they're doing Iraq is not good. What we need to do is do it more like Hong Kong. So there was, there was a kind of a re-normalization, re, uh, I think, uh, a recuperation of the idea of alien rule and colonial intervention as something that is not always turning out well, but could be a space of experimentation, right? And I think that the, I don't, I hadn't, at least for me previously, put together that kind of fascination with Silicon Valley fixing everything with this sort of corrosion of assumptions about national self-determination, but I think that they were also 
I had the feeling that sort of as I get older, that early 2000s will feel more and more like that, where sovereignty really became something that was up for grabs mm -hmm. and kind of for sale and open to intervention um, in ways that had repercussions that we maybe are just figuring out. I mean, I, I guess that what was the, the, the discourse that maybe people remember is the one that, because it became so influential, particularly with the Labour, New Labour and the New Democrats in the 90s, which was the sort of Giddens vision of sort of, uh, which some Marxists also kind of contributed to this as well, which was kind of globalisation, you know, that sort of power is kind of moving upwards into this, into mm -hmm. this kind of trans sort of non, or Castells would be another example mm -hmm. of the sort of space of clothes. Hard and Negri. and so on. Um, and that, Obviously, there was other stuff going on in the background, bubbling along, and as you say, even in, in, in magazines and this sort of thing. Um, I mean, I guess just I, maybe that is my, my last question. Um, one of the things which really struck me from the book, and I think this is where I think you being a historian, is, it means you've got a, a very good eye for this kind of material and for thinking this through, is that sometimes, um, I guess, social theory, sociology, some branch of political economy, perhaps see time in too kind of linear a fashion as sort of, you know, having some kind of progressive, um, maybe not emancipatory, but nevertheless sort of fairly kind of unilinear kind of um, quality to it. Whereas one of the things which really stands out from the book, uh, and it made me think a little bit about Mike Savage's book on the return of inequality that I, I wrote about in the, the London View of Books last summer, which was him um, sort of saying that actually Piketty's work on wealth and wealth inequality messes with our ideas of modernity fundamentally by saying that actually sources of wealth today may be better, more explicable in terms of empire, in terms of uh, extraction of wealth sort of 150, 200 years in the past. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about, about your book, which kind of, I, I think, had echoes of that same sort of fracturing of the very sense of very idea of modernity for me was the fact that actually some of the kind of resources that libertarians are grabbing onto are things that happen to be lying around um, from 200 years ago when David Freeman's <laughs> sense, sort of 800 years ago. So there's a kind of like, there's a sort of um, modernity, uh, there's, a, there's a lack of any sense of, not only a lack of sense of a progress, but there's a lack of any sense of, 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 of there's almost like a sense that, that the past can be sort of grabbed and rearranged and, and, and pushed back, pushed together in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly, I guess, that some of the kind of libertarian fantasies of neoliberalism seem to uh, hope for a reversal of certain aspects of the 20th century, in particular, mass democracy, the welfare state, and to get back to a kind of a, a liberalism of the 19th century. I mean, that certainly seems to be some of the sort of fantasies that surround kind of Hong Kong and that sort of thing, is that mm -hmm. it's still got qualities of being the colonial outpost from, you know, sort of 1890 or something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder if you could just say a little bit about sort of the, the role of history in all of this, mm -hmm. uh, both as a discipline, but also the historical material, because there's so much of, of not just the recent past, but of actually the very distant past that just sort of floats around amidst all of this kind of hyper-modern stuff. And I found that yeah. really kind of intriguing and, and, and quite disorientating as well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, you know, I, I think I should have drawn it out more, actually, now that you mentioned it, because 19th century liberal, yes, in the sense of uh, I've, uh, a stylized idea of a minimal state and a kind of laissez-faire, night watchman, this is their mentality of what the 19th century was, but not 19th century liberal in the sense of sort of Whiggishness, right, or in the sense of kind of a civilizational mission mm. as something yeah. that is sort of the role and duty of the liberal, right? The idea of the need, in the sense of liberal imperialism, that what, that what needs to be done is to take this wonderful <laughs> gem of liberalism that has been developed here, this precious island, 
and sort of you know, spread it out around the globe. Quite the opposite, right? In fact, it's totally anti-Whiggish in the sense that there is no assumption of progress, certainly not as something that is broadly shared and not something that will like through um, it's sort of inevitable force draw in ever larger swaths of the globe and populations. So also very like anti-modernization theory yeah. in, the, in the way that you would think of kind of mid-century American development economics or the way that Americans saw foreign policy. So it's absolutely, the people that I write about are absolutely fine with a kind of polychronic, sort of permanently mm. fractured timeline where some parts of the world might embrace correct policies and continue to advance and maybe profit from the fact that other parts haven't because then they can take advantage of their backwardness, you know, in some kind of arbitrage for whatever the goods that they might need from them. So they actually don't want everyone to be on the same timeline. And the drawing in the Middle Ages stuff is, is interesting enough, but in a way my favorite, because it's more ridiculous even than David Friedman, example is in Somalia, where a Dutch anarcho-capitalist, Michael von Naughton, who used to work at the European Commission, the DG for competition, um, tried to set up these sort of enterprise zones in Belgium. The European Commission said, no, these are against policy. You can't give such great tax breaks to some people and not others. He got frustrated. He started working for UNIDO, the UN International Development Organization. He's off in, in Djibouti, um, at, at consulting with the Djibouti government on creating special economic zones. And then the Somali war breaks out. And he's really excited, basically. He's like, ooh, wow, this could be a great opportunity for realizing stateless uh, society, as I've always hoped for. And gets close to one of the sort of warlords and starts writing up a constitution for a stateless society based entirely on a combination of contract law and his understanding of Somali customary law, which he's gleaning basically from, from um, IF's, IF, I.M. Lewis, the British colonial anthropologist who had written about the Somalis in the 1950s. Um, the anarchists love actually the Horn of Africa already. There's a kind of a belief in the ordered anarchy of clan law because there is no representative government. There is just kind of reparative justice, tit for tat. Um, and the, the laws are relatively simple, you know, in comparison or by their own, their own version of it. So he sets up what he calls businessmen's free ports so that he said that the Somali elders said, what you should do is get your white businessmen friends together and form a clan. And then you guys can have a clan, you can use Somali law, combine it with contract. And what do you need a state for? Um, and it sounds totally, crazy, but actually <laughs> this was one of those situations where I was like, oh no, I hate it when the libertarians have a point. Because it turns out that actually the dissolution of the state and the central bank in Somalia led to two things, increased GDP per capita and a more stable currency. <laughs> so the Somali economy actually boomed in, that, in the 90s. And very mainstream development economists are forced to kind of concede that. Um, and recently now, one of the, the place where he, very place where he wanted to set up this Freeport with a white businessman's clan, he ended up dying, but it did open. And Berbera Freeport is, was just uh, finished by, created by DP World, the Dubai logistics and port operator. 
um, in, in Somaliland. So, so I think that, you know, this is my sort of hope with the, with the book is to like burrow through these outlandish, uh, very anti-modern in a way, um, perspectives on political economic geography and then kind of at the end and be like, oh, that is actually quite a bit like the world we live in. Right. Right. I mean that, oh, like parts of sovereignty have been bargained away and like outsourced to DP world. The P&O ferry scandal recently in, you know, in the UK is a good example of that. So I guess if it's disorienting, then I'm happy. <laughs> that was my goal. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thanks, Quinn. Let's, um, let's uh, open things up for questions and maybe just uh, say who you are as well. Yeah, I mean, the, this being the more the anarcho-capitalist wing, they tend to be more like absolutists about the need to encase and protect IP rather than um, the idea that, like the more consequentialist idea that actually it can be better to have looser IP sometimes. Now they're more on the, they're not all the way to my favorite perspective, which is the guy who, who believes that people owned their own names, so every time you said someone's name, you needed to put money aside because you need to eventually <laughs> recompensate them for speaking their name. Um, Wait, what was his name? I, I, Stephen, Can't say Stephen, it. Stephen, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I didn't tell you how much it cost. Um, Stephen Kinsella writes about him. I can't remember, but Stephen Kinsella is one of the more doctrinaire, Randian, and Randian um, IP people. So it's not a topic that comes up a lot for them. Now that I think about it, it's a good question. But insofar as it does, it is more on the proprietarian rather than consequentialist premium. But Shannon, so I'm glad you mentioned the Shannon thing because that allows me to remind people that the Taliban is opening up former American uh, military bases as special economic zones. <laughs> Just announced uh, about a month ago. Yeah, okay. Um, thanks, Quinn. I'm actually Marat Hombri. I'm, I'm in Goldsmith here. Um, I heard about Canary Wharf and um, Guy spending book about the founder of the Commons. And so I was wondering, I was thinking, in listening to your conversation, how does this these case studies that you, you um, bring here relate or not relate to these stories about enclosures? Mm -hmm. Is it this new kind of enclosure of the commons or is it something else and it you know, puts cracks into this narrative about, about enclosures? Because I can see how some types of anarchists are very keen on defending the commons and seeing this as a future, but at the same time here, 
we're talking about private property in a very specific way, so it's not very clear to me, but... Um... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the easiest way to answer that is that, you know, Garrett Hardin, father of the tragedy of the commons, also author of second most famous essay is Lifeboat Ethics, and the people that I write about are fond of citing both of the essays, probably mm -hmm. equally. And the lifeboat ethics essay, people might know it, but you know the, the gist of it is that we need to think of politics as less something that can be continually expanding the economic share that can be redistributed, but living in a kind of a world of limits, who's very Malthusian kind of demographic thinker. Um, we need to see nations and even smaller communities as like lifeboats. And if somebody is trying to get into your lifeboat and it only has a capacity of six and they're trying to, four people are trying to get in, it's perfectly ethical to hit, hit them with the oars and let them drown because otherwise literally everyone will die. So it's, uh, it's a very sort of uh, gloomy, <laughs> soft way of putting it, attitude towards political arrangements, but it's one that that is sadistic in certain ways that some of my actors sort of celebrate. So there's a kind of, there's a realism to it that is combined with an idea of ever shrinking access to material resources and territory, which sort of hypercharges the idea of the need for enclosure and privatization. So you're absolutely right that there are left anarchists who feel very differently about this stuff. And in a way, I wish that I devoted some time to them because I, don't like people to get the impression that all forms of anarchism are anarcho-capitalism. However, this, the, the, what I do find interesting about them is that I think they're, they are symptomatic of people who sort of, I was writing about this the other day on, was uh, people who have sent, smelled a kind of like a spirit of the age and a spirit of the moment and have sort of said, what happens if we take the fact that so much of our lives are mediated through commercial exchange and contract and the threat of arbitration and so on, and just take that one step further that it's been taken before and obliterate things aside from those kind of commercial transactions? So in that sense, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a hyper-privatization as a frame of uh, politics. I just sort of wanted to make a quick observation. Sorry to to interrupt yeah. again, but I mean it's interesting on this because there's a there's a there's a category that emerged in the 21st century that has some of the qualities of of private property, some of the qualities of the commons, and that's the platform. So the platform mm. as a concept emerges, and, and something like Jochai Benkler's work, which is kind of about commonses, but commons is like sort of like uh, you know like um, municipal bike networks, where effectively mm -hmm. it has some qualities of private property and some qualities of a commons, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, you could say that big tech platforms have some of the qualities of some of these sorts of experiments in the sense that you like, well, if you don't like the rules that we have here at Facebook about freedom mm -hmm. of speech or IP or something like that, you can, you know, you can, well, you kind of can't really leave, but you can sort yeah. of, you can yeah. sort of leave. Um, and, and so there's a, it's kind of interesting that there's possibly a sort of parallel history there mm -hmm. where um, the birth of, uh, of, of networked computing uh, or the sort of, the, the, the well, the arrival of the internet, basically, as a feature of civil society in the early 1990s, mm -hmm. um, perhaps, in terms of a sort of zeitgeist that you're describing here, also is kind of pointing towards something where, uh, where it's possible to have resources which are shared, but nevertheless not public. Mm 
in the, mm -hmm. in the sense that equally yep. the land around, um, you know, the, land, the development of King's Cross Station, that whole lovely area around Central St. Martins or that sort of thing, I mean, that's not really public space. It's owned by, I don't know, the Qatar or someone like that. Mm -hmm. it's, but it feels like public space. It has many of the qualities of public space. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. effectively, you're also under high surveillance the whole time. There's facial recognition going on in the street, this sort of thing. Yep. And that's kind of what, you know, you've got Dubai as one of your case studies. Again, public space that doesn't really have the qualities of public space. Yeah. But the other case study you've got, which is perhaps more directly relevant, is, um, and I can't remember the guru behind it, um, but is the, the guy who wants to move whole communities into the cloud. And Balaji um, Srinivasan. Right. So, yeah. so there are these kind of examples which are perhaps slightly, on some level, a bit more sort of slightly, maybe not humane, but they're not quite like your lifeboat example of like having to beat people off with the oars. Mm -hmm. You can join, you can come on the platform with us. But the platform mm -hmm. is not a platform where you have kind of citizenship rights. It's a mm -hmm. platform, it's a sort of space in which you have, you know, yeah, these kind of transactional rights where you could join in, but the rules are basically kind of not, nothing to do with you effectively. They're mm -hmm. just kind of like control you. So I mm -hmm. know, I, just, I was just thinking as in terms of relation to Maxim's question, that actually that the emergence of the internet in the early 90s does in some ways kind of complicate the question of, public ownership, private ownership in, in some quite significant ways. At the same mm -hmm. time as socialism has been declared kind of dead at the same time. So mm -hmm. I don't know whether that's mm -hmm. kind of speak, how much that yeah. speaks to, but certainly the, the issue of cloud computing, it seems, it seems directly relevant to it. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, the, the emergence of kind of dual class share structures right. in, in Silicon Valley is I think a good example of that. I mean, say what you will about shareholder democracy, but they actually dealt that another blow when they said like, no, the founders have this right. much more powerful say within shareholder democracy. But no, absolutely. I mean, it opened up a new terrain for like that back and forth between how much of this can be common, how much of it should be constrained in the, in the, in the, um, the boundaries of, um, of expression. And it opened up new horizons for the idea of sovereignty parallel to the Iraq story. You have, mm. Balaji Srinivasan, in many ways very smart man, says in one of the passages which which jumped out for me, like, you know, you walk around New York City all day. What if everyone who was on Facebook had to hang a blue flag outside of their window in 2010 and 11, right? At the mo like moments when Facebook usership was going almost vertical. You would sort of look at a building and see like these blue flags. That were, so he's like, what if this was a political identity instead of just a consumer's private identity, you know? Could we, could we think of that as a kind of nationhood or citizenship that could compete with, um, you know, in a, in a direct way, the traditional kind of territorial citizenship? And he's never really figured out a way to make that happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, because for very obvious reasons that the, the infrastructure of Silicon Valley has remained completely dependent on the legacy national structure. I think nowhere has this been more obvious in the last couple of weeks when the <laughs> exitarian, libertarian Silicon Valley people are all like, you know, weeping <laughs> and, out, yeah. and, and, and imploring the Treasury Department to finally come to their aid. Um, in the course of which, interesting, Srinivasan himself has made, I don't know if you heard about this, a pretty high profile bet, uh, a $2 million bet with this social democratic economist that Bitcoin will go to $1 million within the next 90 days. And so they have the money in escrow and everything. And so Srinivasan is saying the Fed is devaluing the currency, da 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 da. But um, he's relying on kind of the, <coughs> the dynamics of meme stocks and kind of swarm investor behavior because he owns so much Bitcoin 
that if he even moves the value, you know, much less than that, he'll still make a huge profit. Right. But it's it's interesting how I think now it's become much harder to take seriously this idea of sort of the metaverse. You know, mm. imagine taking that seriously in 2023. Um, <laughs> as a kind of true alternative to states, but really 10 years ago, it seemed more plausible. Now it's clear that it's just part of a speculative um, investment class, an asset class that you know rises and falls with Fed's interest rates, basically, and doesn't ha really have that generative possibility for new forms of politics yeah. that maybe we thought it to 10 or 20 years ago. Hi. Um Thanks for the talk, it's great. Uh, I'm George, I'm an MA student here. Um, I just wanted to ask something about Freeport specifically. Mm. Um, kind of, the UK government, as you already know, is kind of making Freeport like a flagship policy. They're yeah. saying that this is going to be the answer to leveling up regeneration across the country and these post-industrial areas. Mm -hmm. and these tax-free zones are going to bring all this money to areas. Um, yeah. I grew up, I was from Middlesbrough, I grew up in Teesside mm. and so I followed quite closely the Teesworks Freeport, which is the flagship first one. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, great idea, people loved it at first. Um, but it's been subject to sort of like, you know, there's been accusations that the mayor who helped set it up has sort of sold bits of it off to sort of people who have donated to him in the past and sort mm -hmm. of all sorts of accusations of corruption mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And all these jobs that haven't actually come yet, even though, mm -hmm. it, even though it got started like five years ago. And like mm -hmm. hearing about you talking about these special economic zones and sort of that they're borrowing from like colonial history and all this kind of esoteric different historical examples. Yeah. What's the significance of them leaning on this, the Freeport, as like a means mm -hmm. to actually like undo some of the damage done by I guess austerity and by general mm -hmm. sort of you know, yeah. country? Why are they leaning on this? Is this well it isn't, I don't think, but why are they leaning on this? What does it mean for sort of like regeneration leveling up this Freeport is this big flagship idea yeah. now? It seems bizarre. It is. It's sad, actually. Um, yeah. Funnily enough, I was at Chatham House this morning, and the questions was from someone else from Teesside asked me almost the exact same question. <laughs> oh, really? yeah. So obviously, it's a local theme. Yeah, that's definitely a story I tell in the book. I mean, actually, I wrote something about this in 2019 for The Guardian about Sunak already as, mm -hmm. as having this sort of Freeport fetish. And the genealogy is, is not hard to kind of trace, right? I mean, as I talk about there, the, this first budget, Thatcher's first budget in 1979 that Jeffrey Howe proposed included a series of free ports, including Teesside, and a series of urban enterprise zones at the same time. And other than Canary Wharf, they were all failures. What economists concluded in studying them 10, 15 years later was they produced no net growth of any kind. They moved, they moved investment around People would register things like warehouses inside of the free ports to get the subsidies and the tax breaks, and then when they ran out, they just moved the warehouse outside again. So there was no, there is no magic to free ports. There never has been. It's not like they haven't been tried. They've been around since most of us have been alive, actually, as the Tories' magic bullet for reindustrialization of the British economy. Um, the part, I guess, that's part of what I was trying to argue in the book is like, even if they've been economically and materially unsuccessful, why have they been so ideologically successful? You know, why is it that they continue to be sort of like the first and sometimes the last proposal for 
a whole range of development projects, whether you're in Zambia or Andhra Pradesh or you know, um, the Solomon Islands, it still continues to be all you need to do is draw this line, lift these regulations, and everything's just going to happen by magic. It doesn't. It never has. But it's a kind of a symptom of, I think, just the poverty of collective po political economic thinking, right? That the only way you can do this is by giving a marginal benefit to one place over the other, which produce a kind of zero-sum voting with the feet by the people with the money that will then somehow marginally make things a bit better in one place rather than the other. So this, is, this comes up in the chapter about Singapore, too, because I think that there, you know, this expression, like, every man has two wolves inside of him. I think, like, every Tory has two Singapores inside of them. I mean, there is the kind of, there is the kind of leap into the unknown, trust Quartang, Singapore, which is just like, close your eyes and believe, just, you know, tap your ruby red slippers together and say it three times. I mean, it was just no way that was going to happen. Um, it was clear from the outset. It was a version of sort of negative freedom, just like, we just have to do it. But there is the other Singapore that, you know, to be honest, Dominic Cummings knows the other Singapore a lot better, I think, than Trust and Quartang did. Read Lee Kuan Yew's biography very closely, his, memory, his autobiography posted like a 10-part series on his blog. It's about the only thing he's posted on his blog, which is getting a lot of money for every, every month through subscribers. Um, <laughs> but, but that is a different vision, right? You use the power of the state to do investment, to do R&D, to do the things that, to create a sovereign wealth fund, to buy public housing. So if you look at what Sunak is even calling free ports now, um, it's not necessarily, I think it's, it's not necessarily the best way to describe what he's actually doing. There actually is quite a bit of, as far as I can tell, uh, subsidies and investments going towards things like universities and research institutions, which to me is a good thing. Like I think there's this, there's this paradox of public messaging where you need to pretend you're just doing the libertarian entrepreneurial thing, even when you're actually doing something that might be more productive, which is like using the power of the state to like try to find Britain's comparative advantage in a world economic stage. So that kind of, that kind of shadow play between the active state and the absent state is something that I think like the Freeport just captures really well. And it's almost like a kind of, like a turning crystal or something, like its sparkliness just seems to continue to enchant, you know, whatever the Tory policymakers mind, like a cap. <laughs> they just keep on batting at it year after year. So there were a couple of questions now. There's one there and then there. Oh, sorry, there's two here. So I think, I think it's Jim. We have three. Thanks for the great discussion. Um, I'm Gareth Bryant. I work at the Political Economy Department at the University of Sydney, but I'm visiting London at the moment. Um, I'm wondering, Queen, if there's a climate dimension to mm. the story that you're telling. Like one of the, I originally was wondering about that because one of the things I'm looking at is the establishment of renewable energy zones, um, which have been established in Australia, where I'm from, but also I think in the UK offshore wind industry, and I think in Texas and elsewhere, um, mm -hmm. which I think can be partly traced to what you're talking about, but not mm -hmm. quite the same. A lot of what yeah. they promise is kind of access to or overcoming infrastructure bottlenecks as well as like yep. just uh, not having to deal with pesky local democracy issues, mm -hmm. um, people mm -hmm. don't want to, not wanting to farms at their doorstep, that kind of sure. thing. 
Um, but then also listening to your um, response to Maxime about Garrett Hardin also made me wonder whether there could be a kind of a prefigurative thing about uh, dealing with the implications of climate for like politics and for you know, restructuring of the economy by creating these kind of uh, experiments in economic zones. So yeah, just wondering mm -hmm. if there's a climate dimension to the people you're reading and, and yep. the story you're telling. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it, I do mention it at the end in, in relationship actually to Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. I don't know if you've read that, but like that has a similar sort of zoning that's happening, not just sort of highly defended gated communities, but also under conditions of climate change, there's sort of like desalination plants that are being set up along the coast of California that are governed by Japanese and German investors kind of a thing. Um, so the idea of kind of like a sacrifice zone or a retreat zone, I mean, there's obviously a re-territorialization of kind of the political imagination of the future as a result of a climate breakdown. The way that I think one could kind of salvage parts of the zoning talk for more progressive purposes would be probably the kind of things you're describing. So if there were a UN development consultant in the room, they might be like, it's so funny that you're trashing these zones as just these libertarian <laughs> experiments, because in fact, we're doing all kinds of sustainability in blue zones and countries A, B, and C, and we're actually finding that if you can set up a kind of, say like some sort of a benchmarking system with like a sticker on products, then you can get people to invest in more sustainable forms of you know, production, and often those do happen through subnational kind of like jurisdictional exceptional spaces. So I think it is important to not come away from this, or it's important for me not to give the impression that I'm saying that every time you sort of experiment with kind of jurisdictional pluralism or diversity, this is like evil or something, or like in service of some agenda that we're not noticing. The climate stuff happening in the United States now with the, the investment relief, Act, a reduction act will happen in ways often through zoning, right? I mean, in the sense that you'll be saying, we're gonna give subsidies to this kind of um, green technology that will happen in this particular part of the United States that will have its own set of maybe incentives and subsidies and so on. So the uneven geography of uh, national economy is something that I think undulates, right? It can be filled with different sort of political um, uh, missions at some times and other times others. So it would be nice actually to, to do a kind of inverted version of this where you just looked at kind of the U US, like in the UK, like community land trusts and you know, yeah, local currencies. I mean, there's still there's a real utopias sort of literature as well, would be another. Sure. Yeah. yeah. We have uh, two um, questions on this table here. So I can't move who's first. <laughs> Other 
changes around it? Hmm. <laughs> What's my theory of the state? Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, I've often thought that this sort of state market binary was unhelpful. But on the other hand, you know, thinking about the United States where I live, the moments where the state actually begins to kind of exert its own capacities and like exert its own kind of affordances as a state, uh, when you see that happening, it's actually easy to actually realize, well, this maybe the state market binary is something, in fact. Where, so like the, the attempt to do a kind of Biden progressive economic agenda hasn't decreased, let's say, the reliance of the United States on the private financial sector. Um, I mean, in many ways, the US government still remains the kind of servant in some ways of the private financial sector, but you can see ways that you can you can sort of repurpose legislation or create new legislation that can at least send some of the funnels of private investment in ways that are better collectively or socially or that serve sort of more uh, agreed upon goals than others. So I, I mean, I guess that's not a very good answer, uh, but I'm not a political theorist, but, um, but I guess I see that, you know, I see the state as, as existing in this kind of demand, this sort of dependency in a way of like the private management of the economy. And the question is how do you sort of tweak the incentives and change the kind of framework to create different um, like outcomes than you had before. <laughs> yeah, and then they. Yeah, funny, I was also going to ask about um, that relationship between state and, okay. and, and mm -hmm. the private economy, but um, maybe also specifically talking about the free ports. Mm -hmm. I'm always wondering, was there, was there ever really any ambition for the free port to help um, the British population, or was it from the beginning Oh great! With the free ports, we can help uh, businesses um, pay less tax or do whatever is an advantage for them, and mm -hmm. then it's just publicly told to to, to the media or to the population. Mm -hmm. We're well, we doing this for you, while, while from the beginning that wasn't even the plan. So I'm, I'm mm -hmm. not sure. If, are they really unsuccessful? And somebody like Rishi Sunak is like, oh my God, this didn't work out very well. What a surprise. Or, mm -hmm. or I knew it wasn't going to work out, but I did it for a different reason anyway. Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure it's not either or completely, but the balance. Yeah, I mean, so I think that the demonstration effect, the idea of a demonstration effect is a very important part of the story. So Keith Joseph, when he was discussing this, in like 1978, 79, said that what we're going to do is set aside parts of Great Britain and run them completely through capitalist form. We're gonna lift all regulations, you know, lift all safety regulations, lift all zoning and coding requirements, and, and let's see what does better, that or other parts of, right? So this, so this idea that, that there's a pedagogical quality to these experiments in kind of deregulation or, isn't isn't so much about sort of producing like 
knock-on effects or multiplier effects that will spread through the economy. But it's the same way that in the 1930s, you might say, like, a communist might say, look at the successes of the Soviet Union. Um, in the 1970s, a libertarian said, look at the successes of Hong Kong. And the, the attempt is then to have something local or domestic, which you can then gesture to and say that this can be used as a kind of a template for the rearrangement of social relation, relations and also as a kind of, as part of an ideological battle with your nemesis, which is the, in this case, sort of social democracy. So in this, it's one thing that's really consistent through the kind of zoning scholarship that I've seen um, is the kind of, the, the tendency not to work through kind of empirics, but to work through anecdote. So someone asked me the other day, like, are there any good, he, he was an economist, and he's like, so what's the best economic study on the effects of special economic zones? And I was like, you know, I've read UN reports on the special economic zone, and they don't say, you know, on average, an SEZ can be expected to da da da. Why? Well, because most of them are failures. But they will say, Shenzhen, the story of Shenzhen. So there's like a kind of a fairy tale narrative that stands in for evidence, right? Which then sort of implots a possible political storyline that you, as a ideological entrepreneur or a politician, can sort of insert yourself into. So there's a, it's really not like a, it's very uneconomistic, actually, right? It's, it is a kind of PR exercise, um, and I think needs to be understood that way. Um, but yeah, that reminds me, I just, one thing I wanted to mention on the climate question, this is, a, this is like a wonderful little factoid that talking about narratives that, you know, Dubai famously built the world, you know, this archipelago of islands off the coast that they sold first as just like super luxury, you know, own your own island, you know, and I can't remember like Rod Stewart owned Britain and like, you know, the guy from Metallica bought like whatever, Tanzania, I don't know what it was. Um, but they, the one that did go up was a former Austrian Freedom Party um, operative who became a Dubai real estate developer and built something called the Heart of Europe, which, <laughs> which has a snowy street <laughs> uh, sort of Swiss chalets, Swedish longboats, um, tour, like a kind of Cinque Terre type like it Italian street scene. And the power of rebranding and storytelling in the last couple of years, he has now started to sell it as the most sustainable tourism destination Because <laughs> you've got a snow-filled street off the coast of Dubai. And, you know, so I think, you know, so much of this needs to be understood that way, like in a way through the terms of communication and media rather than actually dollars and cents, right? These are political projects and they should be understood as such. Yeah, I'm from the Department. I need to see in the world independent we raise about spaces that are uh, public, but mm. look like public, but they're not really public. Yeah platforms that are blurred about it between properties and the commons. And I was wondering, in your opinion, bearing in mind what you said, that jurisdiction of pluralism is not necessarily bad, right? So building on this fragmentation and also the impossibility of proposing in a traditional concept, but also the third concept, which is the common instead of public and yeah. private. Do you think that <clears throat> this kind of uh, partial crack within state sovereignty, mm -hmm. uh, that in principle goes in the direction of uh, political 
push us to forge new political councils in terms of mm -hmm. policy consciousness? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I think that one thing that I observed in the first few months of the pandemic, and this is something that was, you know, it was really a remarkable time when you think back to it, right? Because in the United States, for example, within a couple of months, you had things happening that we would only imagine in the most far-fetched science fiction, right? Like, you know, a neighborhood in Long Island, New York, is now has like a cordon sanitaire around it, and unless you're a resident, you can't enter, and if you are a resident, you can't leave, right? Governors are like seizing medication and masks from one state to the next and making sure that under armed guard that they don't get taken by the neighboring governor. So you've got this kind of very, very rapid like reconfiguration of expectations around political geography and also around, I think, the scale at which problems can and could and should be solved. And one thing that I saw, I was actually in Western Canada during that time of the pandemic, but the idea of kind of like mutual aid and kind of like decommodified just support networks and solidarism like at a neighborhood level and a local level was like extremely rapid and extremely strong. My, my mom is like, you know, uh, as with many uh, people of her generation, was like a Facebook addict. And in the, in the early years before the pandemic that had just meant, you know, like a fixation on some cause, oh, she might listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, meant a fixation on very important progressive and environmental causes, but often things that were one step removed from her own lived reality. But in the months of the pandemic, the idea of like giving things away for free and using like Facebook Marketplace to do things for people who needed to have things done, like, you know, my elderly neighbor needs this, we need to have this done, does anyone need any extra X, Y, or Z? You know, this Marketplace was actually being used just for mutual aid. Like it was actually totally decommodified support. And it was one of the first times where I was like, oh, wow, like this technology, this platform is actually living up to its potential. Like it's actually being used as kind of a tool for commoning rather than for new enclosures and kind of factional, um, you know, turf creation over political positions. So those acts of kind of decentralization, which are very unpredictable, nobody a year before that could have said, well, in the event of a global pandemic, I bet we'd have all of these things happening at the same time. How could anyone model that or speculate about that? So I think that there is something important about the political imagination and approach, which is just to be open to that kind of a unexpected, you know, efflorescence of varieties of togetherness and sociability, and not to assume in advance that we'll all be kind of hyper-individualistic hyper or rapacious or zero-sum, because I don't think it necessarily will. But it must be said that the smaller scale does seem to be the size and scale at which these things were happening, sort of neighborhoods and maybe towns rather than states or provinces. Or I mean, I was just going to say. I mean, the I mean, the history of the if if one were to tell the the good version of your story in a mm -hmm. in a follow up book, I mean, there, there's the whole history of of the new towns and the gardens garden city movement, 
which mm -hmm. is really a kind of origin of modernism in, 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 in urban planning, mm -hmm. uh, where the idea being that you could create an enclave from you know, the industrial kind of hell mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the big city. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking, you, know, you could look at like, cities, I mean, okay, whether they turn out well is another question, but the, the hopes that get invested into a city like a Brasilia or something like that, mm -hmm. where effectively you're trying to effectively design quite a large scale community from scratch, do not stem originally from the right. So in that sense, maybe there's a kind of an right. interesting sort of, um, yeah, interesting genealogy of how kind of left, left modernism has perhaps got onto some of these kind of projects sooner. And certainly the whole history of sci-fi is tied up with the idea of being, obviously, I mean, this is, you know, some of your characters are effectively kind of sci-fi nuts, but, yeah. um, but, but and seasteading is a, is a kind of like a science fiction kind of project mm -hmm. gone real. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's quite interesting to think about this in relation to, well, particularly urban planning and, and, and some mm -hmm. aspects of, of, of modernism. Yeah, I mean, Singapore, in a way, is kind of one of the last bastions of Fabianism. Right. The original garden city was to be sort of collectively, or owned... Um, and governed through a trust, right. and in some, and that's sort of what Singapore is. Ninety percent of housing is owned by the state, sovereign wealth fund, a common provident fund, sort of central provident fund holds people's savings and sort of dispenses it centrally. Um, there's a late geographer whose name I'm forgetting. She was a Finn who wrote about it as a kind of the one place where Georgism was sort of put into practice after a fashion hmm. and the popularity of henry george and the land value tax in silicon valley alongside a lot of this more extreme forms of anarcho-capitalism is something that is hmm. also i think worth investigating so i'm totally open to the idea of like commoning capitalism <laughs> as, the, as the sequel okay uh, on that note i just wanted uh, everyone to join me in thanking uh, quince Bowden very much i want to say that there are some books have just arrived uh, via the word bookshop and i believe they are on at a discount am i right about that which and it's not out yet actually as well so this is your chance to get a book not only from an excellent local independent uh, bookseller but also at a discount and also before uh, everybody else can get a hold of a copy so do buy one but thank you very much quince Bowden. <laughs>